Morning, Black family. Hey, it's here. Nene just went downstairs to answer the door. Her daughter came over to drop something off. Oh, we got the uh, brother Professor Black Truth. It's about 28 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. Family and fellow soldiers, I'm the professor, and this is the moment of truth. For the last few days, I've been getting these little organized caravans of liars coming on my channel. They didn't like the video that I did where I simply pointed out that all of these white supremacist nerds are the biggest problem that so-called has. Now, I can tell because there was this quick influx of them that came in. Clearly, one of the perpetually butthurt racist geeks must have seen my video and went to a tizzy and told their brain-dead, meth-huffing followers to go ahead and give me a visit. Well, since you didn't like my last video, let me make you really hot under the collar. We need to call these punks what they are, Nazi nerds. That's where a lot of these people came from. A lot of them happen to be your garden variety, run-of-the-mill white supremacists who normally would be on Stormfront. In fact, a lot of them are there. And what happened was these clowns wanted to call themselves, deciding that they would try to find new blood, new recruits. See, they figured the best way to try to reach young white people with their message would be to go where the young white people are at, and that happens to be largely around entertainment, video games, and movies specifically. And then they take the same old white supremacist talking points that they have been using in the 80s and 90s and aughts and such, their old material, the recycled talking points. We need to get black people out of these universities because they're taking the universities, they're taking the jobs, etc., etc. And they just replace universities and jobs with Star Wars and comic books. It's the same moral panic and phony racial outrage that they've always trafficked in. They flew off the handle after Obama got re-elected. His election was bad enough, but the re-election, that's when the wheels came off the loony wagon. And they failed to get any sort of real traction going on the ground, basically on the streets or the legislatures. And 2020 was their wake-up call that they're living on borrowed time. Now, don't get me wrong, they're far from beaten. The white supremacists are ultra-hypersensitive to anything that even remotely might look like a challenge to them. So when they see a few stress fractures in the edifice of their power, to them, that's a five-alarm fire. That's why there's only been one black superhero movie, and yet you have these white supremacist racists screaming, we're losing everything, the movies are all woke, all the characters are all black. And they sit around in their little groups of movies, repeating these old talking points to each other, basically brainwashing one another, and you can tell it was a small mood of wash. That's why Bethany Mandel looked like the idiot she did the other day. White supremacy requires that they control not only what exists, but also what people think as well. So when they see anything that threatens the status quo, they have to go into hysterics about it and become violent and scream that they face an existential crisis. That's why when they saw one lonely little black stormtrooper in a Star Wars movie, they began shrieking, this is white genocide. To justify their white supremacist control, they pushed lying narratives. The main one is that we don't see more images of black people because, well, nobody wants to see black people. That's the reason why there aren't more movies that have black people in them. And we shouldn't have to see them because black people just don't sell. That's not just an outright lie, but it's also a lie by omission. First of all, most of the movies that go to theaters fail to make money, and the overwhelming majority of them star white people, especially white male actors. Only two or three starring black people go to theaters every year, and at least half of them make a profit, or at the very least, they earn out. That means that at a minimum, the studios recoup whatever money they put into the production of the movie. So to use the white supremacist's favorite talking point, when you look at the movies per capita, 
you see that black movies are far more profitable and successful than the ones with white leads. You flood the multiplex with white lead movies and most of them die over opening weekend. And the picture becomes even worse when you look at so-called blockbusters, which is where the studios make their money. Recently, you had the release of Creed 3, and it became a major hit already. Two black men were the leads in that movie. It currently has earned $246 million worldwide. On its debut weekend, it raked in $58 million, blowing away all industry estimates. Now, compare that to Shazam 2, the superhero flick that came out two weeks ago. Its opening weekend made $30 million, and currently it only has $100 million worldwide, with a rather anemic $45 million domestic. Oh, and Shazam 2 is in more movie theaters than Creed 3. 4,071 theaters compared to Creed's 4,007. And sure, Shazam 2 hasn't been out as long as Creed 3, but when you look at the second weekend drop, you see that 79% of the people who showed up to see Shazam 2 on his opening weekend didn't come back to see it again. A movie can only make hundreds of millions of dollars if it can get repeat viewings from the audience. When nearly 80% of the people who saw the movie didn't come back, that also means they're telling other people they can skip this one too which they have. And Shazam 2 is not the only recent example. Scream 6, which is led by a white cast, did better than Shazam 2, but not by much. It certainly didn't do better than Creed 3. Scream 6 opened to $44 million on its debut weekend, and people thought that that meant it was gonna do monster numbers. But its second weekend, it nosedived with a drop of 73%. So three quarters of the people who saw it on opening weekend didn't bother to come back. And they didn't tell a friend to stop that three. Compare the free fall that Shazam and Scream 6 had to Creed 3. I'm not crapping on Shazam 2 because the latest Marvel movie did poorly as well, but Quantum Mania, you recall, has a white male lead too, and a white woman as a co star. And they also had a huge and drop on their second weekend as well. So, when will we have these nuts and that movies with white leads just don't sell? Well, they're not going to because this isn't about math. It's not about profits. It's about pushing an anti-black narrative. Because you can choose any year you want. And when you look at the worst performing movies from any given year, they're practically all movies with white leads and white male leads in specific. So the numbers make it clear who fails at the box office. These Nazi nerds may have the luxury of deciding that they can crap on movies that make lots of money. But if you're the people who actually run the studios, you don't have the luxury of ignoring the math. The narrative that the Nazi nerds have been trying to push is that any movie that has black people in it is automatically woke. But studios don't listen to whining like that because they only care about the numbers. As I explained in my last video, Curb Stomping These Punks, Gina Carano's career is over because the same Nazi nerds who claim to love her so much couldn't leave their mother's basements long enough to see her so-called movie. And afterwards, they began attacking her Daily Wire flick as woke. No cure for stupid. And here's a few more examples of the neo-Nazi nerds failing. When Spider-Man No Way Home was announced, Sony said that Zendaya would be playing the part of Mary Jane. So predictably, the Nazi nerds went to phony outrage about it. They screamed all of their typical buzzwords, forced diversity, woke, and that audiences are sick and tired of this and they won't go see this woke crap. They shrieked that it would die over opening weekend, that Spider-Man No Way Home had no chance to make a profit. Basically all the same crap they said about House of the Dragon when they saw a black man in the cast. Well, Spider-Man No Way Home and his Black Mary Jane broke box office records. In fact, it did so well it broke the records of the previous Spider-Man movies. It's now the top performing Spider-Man movie of all time.
It was an undeniable runaway success, and now it's the seventh highest grossing movie of all time. Not just the seventh highest grossing superhero movie of all time, but the seventh highest grossing movie, period. Star Wars The Force Awakens and its Black Stormtrooper sits at number five of all time. These same Nazi nerds also say that Avatar 2 was woke, and it has Zoe Saldana in it, so it's forced diversity, woke, and that audiences are sick and tired of this and won't go see this woke crap. They also attack James Cameron, saying that his movies are nothing more than liberal environmentalist agitprop. And it's not 2012, they said. There's no 3D glasses to make this movie a must-see flick this time around. And in an interview shortly before Avatar 2's release, James Cameron was quoted as saying that the movie would have to make $2 billion back just to be profitable, given all the money that went to the research and development of making it. And the Nazi nerds began licking their chops. At that point, they thought this was a guaranteed W for them. They said, oh, that's impossible. There's no way Avatar 2 is going to make $2 billion. Avatar 2 is going to die over opening weekend. There's no 3D glasses this time to make it a must-see flick. There's no way it's going to make $2 billion. Well, they were right. Avatar 2 didn't make $2 billion. So far, it's made $2.3 billion and counting, and it's the number three highest grossing movie of all time. Oh, and by the way, when the neo-Nazi nerds saw that happen, they immediately did a shift, just like they did with House of the Dragon, just like they did with Spider-Man No Way Home, and all of a sudden they were saying, well, you know, Avatar 2 does have a strong male lead, and that's the reason why it made my... You see how that one works. And you remember that Batman movie they starred What's-His-Name from Twilight? They cast Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. No big deal, right? After all, Eartha Kitt was the original Catwoman back in the 60s on that god-awful Batman show. And these Nazi nerds revere that show, right? Well, not anymore, because we live in the post-MAGA world where they must pretend to hate what they used to love. So when Zoe Kravitz was announced as Catwoman, we got the usual whining about, say it with me, forced diversity and woke, and that audiences are sick and tired of this and won't go see this woke crap and it's going to die over opening weekend and blah, blah, blah. Well, The Batman went on to make over $770 million, and the sequel is going to begin filming soon. So we see all these movies that these Nazi nerds whine about. They make a big deal about it whenever a film occasionally underperforms. Even movies that they hadn't attacked, if there was a big production, a big movie that fails, they jump on it anyway and say, well, it failed because it was woke. This is trying to create a false association in people's minds what they're trying to do. But reality always gets the last word, because these neo-Nazi nerds always fall completely silent whenever the movies that they claim are going to fail over opening weekend instead go on to set box office records and to do so consistently. They also try to change their tune when Spider-Man No Way Home set box office records. They suddenly began acting like they were on board with it all along. White supremacy believes in taking both sides of the conversation. Thank you, Neely Fuller. This is why the studios don't listen to these Nazi nerds. Why would they? These clowns have been wrong for so long, only an idiot would even listen to them. You look at Daily Wire. Are they a rival to Disney? Or are they a rival to Warner Brothers or Paramount or Universal or Lionsgate or Sony? Hell, is Daily Wire even a rival to Tyler Perry or Blumhouse Studios for that matter? Daily Wire serves up the kind of reaffirming slop that these Nazi nerds demand, and it's a tiny, failing vanity project by a racist shrinky dink. In addition to being racist, Ben Shapiro, Tucker Carlson, Michael Knowles, and Stephen Chowder, uh, I mean Crowder, 
also have something else in common. They've all failed to make it in entertainment. Michael Knowles is a failed actor. Shapiro is both a failed musician and writer. Crowder is a failed comedy writer, and Tucker Carlson failed to become a TV anchor on a real network, so he retreated to Fox News. When these clowns failed to get traction in the entertainment world, which is where they really wanted to be, they instead decided to reinvent themselves as angry white commentators who attacked the media that they couldn't get into full-time. Crowder failed to make anyone laugh when he tried and failed to be a comedian, so instead he tries to be offensive, because at least that's something he can actually do. That's what drives them. Pure bitterness. Sour grapes. They failed to hack into the industry that they wanted to be in, so they figured if we can't make money in the industry, at the very least, we'll try to make money off of it by trashing it full time. These racists have a niche, but it's the worst kind. The kind that doesn't grow. None of them are anywhere near as successful as the studios who they attack. Their predictions of doom and failure for the studios and networks have all been wrong, but it gives them job security, though it keeps their audiences angry because their viewers are waiting to see when their predictions of media studio collapse will finally come true so that they can stop seeing black people's faces on movie screens. And they're mad because after a decade, it hasn't happened. And it's not going to. If you do what Ben Shapiro does, you'll get the results that Ben Shapiro's got. Now, what studio or media executive in their right mind wants to trade places with Ben Shapiro? Which one of them would like to trade in their balance sheet for the balance sheet of the Daily Wire or any of these other right-wing racists who you see whining online? Do you think any of these studio executives would actually trade the $800 million they make at the box office for the $800 Ben Shapiro generates? If you're trying to run a major studio and not some white racist vanity project, which one makes more sense to you? There's absolutely nobody in any studio who wants to trade places with Ben Shapiro. Nobody looks at that small contingent of whining white racists online as being some sort of growth market. What Disney is doing works. Sure, the loudmouth morons online don't like it, but unless you live your life on a steady diet of right-wing nut propaganda, they don't matter. Oh, they loved it when Dave Chappelle said that he wasn't worried about what the transgender critics had to say because Twitter isn't real. But what these Nazi nerds don't realize is that includes them too. The only place that they have any sort of notoriety or attention happens to be online. Dave Chappelle simply said out loud the same thing that the executives at these studios think about these Nazi nerds. Their profits are not determined by what some sawed-off Nazi nerd says on Twitter or on YouTube. The moguls who run these studios are not about to abandon the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars they're making now just so they can get a like or a thumbs up from some online Nazi nerds. You can't pay the bills with that. They only care about numbers. And that's what makes these Nazi nerds so mad. They know that the vast majority of movies that flop in the box office happen to star white actors, usually white male actors. And they also know that the white studio executives are almost all white males, so they keep making a ton of white-led movies, regardless of how many of them fail, which is most of them. And they pay these white leading men big paychecks, which they consistently fail to recoup. It's the epitome of failing upwards. So why would Nazi nerds who themselves have failed their entire lives want to see anyone institute a meritocracy? That's what really scares them. White supremacy is a system of goodies, giveaways, and most of all, guarantees handed to those classified as white. It's the biggest grift in human history, which explains why all these Nazi nerds want to be part of it. 
They are the epitome of selective outrage. They attack anything with black people in it. Then when it becomes successful, they shut up about it because they can't claim it went broke. Well, the studio sees this silence and they realize these guys are just background noise. That's why none of these studios are changing what they're doing because what they're doing works. It may not please absolutely every single person, but it doesn't have to either. When you're making billions of dollars, you don't worry about the handful of people who didn't like it. It wasn't meant for them. That's how things go when you deal with grown-ups. Adults don't listen to whiny babies. And the brain-dead inbred fans of these Nazi nerds actually wonder why these studios ignore them. And they will keep wondering because there's no cure for stupid. And of course, the biggest, loudest, and wrongest voices of these Nazi nerds are the ones who are just running a pure grift. They figured out that there's a cottage industry for phony white outrage, and there's a few morons trying to make money off of them because the states still haven't eliminated the mental health budgets yet, so these lobotomized bigots still get money from the state. The idiot economy still has some life left in it. But until those budget cuts finally happen, we can reflect on how these chumps have taken L after L after L. Recently, we've seen the next phase of this phony white outrage grift. It takes the form of these white supremacists saying that they're going to do their own little media projects. And of course, you've had a number of these rubes who have done crowdfunding and they've managed to raise even upwards of seven figures. But so what? That's not going to change anything. There's been plenty of examples of white supremacists who have raised seven figures for their knuckle-dragging community, and they've all failed to do anything. Nothing ever comes from it. They're flash-in-the-pan vanity projects. Not one of them ever becomes a going concern. They do one so-called comic book or one so-called movie, and that's it. Not one of them, even the ones who have raised seven figures, has demonstrated that they have the ability to put out a publication monthly or quarterly or even annually. You cannot run a business when you have no frequency of product. And the same for their movies. None of them can make a franchise out of the dreck they produce because nobody wants to see it other than the same mouth-breathing neckbeards on YouTube. And as we saw with Gina Carano, even the racist basement dwellers don't want to see it. Though in some of their cases, the problems these projects have are worse than you might think. For example, there was one white supremacist vanity project called Rebels Run. This was a so-called comic book put together by a die-in-the-wool white supremacist who wanted to celebrate the Confederate flag because of all the great things it represents, like slavery, and losing a war so badly you still haven't gotten over it yet, and slavery. This guy is also the type who thinks the FBI is an anti-white federal gang run by Black Lives Matter and that the FBI needs to be defunded and disbanded because people don't need the FBI. Now, the guy who this white supremacist hired to write the story for this hate tract is Chuck Dixon. Chuck Dixon was a comic book writer whose heyday was back in the 90s. He's pretty much known for only one thing. He created the comic book character Bane. If you saw The Dark Knight Rises, you know who that is. And I think that's worth pointing out because he gets paid money every time that character is used in a movie or video game or what have you. I hope that some of you folks in my audience who happen to like comic book movies or any of the geek fare are starting to realize why I don't get enthused about these comic book movies or TV shows and whatnot. I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with them, but I think you need to understand who makes the kind of media that you consume. And a number of them are dyed-in-the-wool anti-black racists. 
Anyway, I don't know how well this Rebels Run comic book sold, but apparently the racist who dreamt it up decided to try and make a movie out of it. Well, with Rebels Run, they allegedly crowdfunded $1 million. Those state mental health budget cuts can't come fast enough for me. Your tax dollars are work, family. The genius white supremacist behind this scheme decided to take the money that he crowdfunded and put it into a bank that had a name that practically screamed fly-by-night operation. A bank that claims it caters to the unbankable. The guy behind the bank acted like some phony Instagram influencer. You know the type. He poses with fancy cars and claims to be rich. All of that projecting success nonsense. Well, you won't be surprised to learn the guy who owned this bank is also a crypto bro. Oh, say it ain't so. If you can't trust the crypto bros, you can't trust anyone. It's nothing sacred. The bank owner took the million dollars in angry white rage donations, and he used it to pay off some other financial debt that he had. By the way, the same white right-wing racist who came up with this rebels run idea, you know, the guy who thinks the FBI is an anti-white federal gang run by Black Lives Matters and they need to be defunded and we don't need them. Well... He ran to the FBI and asked them to investigate this incident. I guess he needed them. So it's all become this big mess because white supremacists are inherently stupid. The money is all gone, which just goes to show Gordon Gecko was right. A fool and his money never should have been together in the first place. Now, if any of this sounds familiar, it should. This was the exact same formula of failure that Ben Shapiro followed when he made that crappy Gina Carano movie. You know, the one that made $800 at the box office. Another thing that's familiar <laughs> is that the racists who call themselves making these movies or comic books or whatever, they don't have a background in filmmaking. And worse than that, they don't even want to tell a story. They just want to preach a sermon. They seem to think that making a movie is as simple as getting a camera and having someone stand in front of it. They haven't mastered their craft at all, mainly because filmmaking isn't their craft. Hating black people is. But nobody's going to pay money to see the most pampered demographic in society attempt to play the victim or try to pretend that their cheap, vile racism is anything other than cheap, vile racism. In every movie and TV show ever made, these racist white supremacists are the bad guys. They seem to think the problem is that there's white leftists who by and large make the movies and TV shows. As they see it, if they could just get some white right-wingers to make some films, why, they could counter their own bad image. Everybody agrees with them, or so they think. It's just that the media has cowed people into silence with anti-white supremacist propaganda. They simply don't want to accept that the problem isn't that movies and TV shows take them out of context or distort their image. The problem is the movies and TV shows present them exactly as they truly are, exactly as the public knows them to be. And their own pathetic attempts at filmmaking simply reinforce every negative impression people have about them. It will be impossible for them to change that perception, A, because it's true, so it's not perception, it's reality, and B, these white supremacists couldn't tell a good story if Alfred Hitchcock rose from his grave and made the movie for them. So what happens when someone has neither the aptitude nor the attitude for what they're attempting to do? They fail. And if they raise a bunch of money for a crowdfunding, what happens? They wind up with a big budget failure. See, that's what the studios understand about movies that these Nazi nerds never will. Having a big successful crowdfunding is simply the beginning of making something a steadily profitable enterprise. You have to keep the customers coming back. But there's something else about these angry Nazi nerds' so-called attempts to make their own media that proves why they'll never be anything other than a handful of nuts online. 
One or two of them may make a million dollars in crowdfunding, but after taxes and expenses, that money dries up pretty fast. And also, where's their track record of sales? Shouldn't they be able to demonstrate how each one of their comic books or whatever grows in sales every month? I guess they could if they put something out more than just once a year. See, that's what Rebels Run and the rest of these schemes are about. The inbreds behind them only manage to put out one book and that's it. These hate tracks take a year to make and then after that, nothing. That's not a going concern. One comic book every year is not a business. It's not even a side hustle. If you want to make a comic book, you're supposed to have an issue every single month, or at the very least, every other month. These guys can't even make one quarterly. It's the same reason they failed to make any movie franchises either. No one wants to see their movies to begin with, so they never get the chance to make any sequels. And that strikes at the heart of why Woke keeps winning, while the Nazi nerds keep failing. What they put out doesn't capture the imagination. The people who give them money for a crowdfunding aren't doing it as anything other than a protest vote. There's no excitement or enthusiasm behind the people making this trek or the empty, soulless trolls who give them what few pennies they have to support it. At some point, you have to appeal to a general audience. And general audiences are the very people who these online racists hate. The morons you see yelling woke and forced diversity and nobody wants to see black people in movies. They're not the general audience at all. They're just a tiny handful of online bigots. And if you try to appeal to them, well, you might be able to pay next month's rent with that $800 you get, but you won't be doing much more than that. Even the racist knuckle-draggers who wasted their county check on this trash don't actually like it. And without enthusiasm, you don't have a fan base. You don't have the raw excitement that you need if something is going to become part of pop culture. Same as I told you about Gina Carano. They don't talk about her or her projects. There's no anticipation from them to see what she's doing. They don't have any interest in her at all, and it shows. These racists can't create imaginary worlds that people want to get lost in, because when your entire story is about phony grievance, manufactured outrage, and basically Fox News talking points, on a movie screen or a page, even your own supporters don't want to escape into that. They'll give a few dollars as a political statement, sure, but you can't permeate the culture or build a media venture on political statements. You need an enthusiastic and excited fan base who love what's being created. Not people who are merely supporting it because they think it will make a few liberals angry. Woke works. Woke wins. Because the movie studios and or comic book companies they at least put out their product consistently, and it's actually interesting. They create stories, characters, and places that a primary audience wants to escape into, and they put it out with enough frequency that they can make an ongoing business out of it. One comic book every 18 months isn't going to cut it. A two-bit operation like Shapiro's will never make a franchise out of any of his movies unless they can put out at least one sequel a year. Not all mediums are created equal. They each have their own rules and requirements, but one thing that all mediums have in common is that there's a requisite minimum of frequency that has to be reached if you want it to influence the culture. Hell, if you even want it to be a steady stream of income, you'll never be able to influence the culture if you only put something out once every blue moon. But these clowns don't respect anyone, not even their own customers. They see them as rubes, suckers ripe for the picking, and they're right. It's all a grift. It's all a hustle and not even a productive one. They'll keep at it until this latest grift dries up and then they'll move on to something else, most likely some pretend political organization or possibly even a religious one.
They don't want to make their own media. They just want to complain about black people. And that doesn't inspire anyone, not even their own. Yes, people will give the local white nationalist nitwits some outreach dollars as a kind of protest purchase. But that runs out pretty fast unless you have something compelling to offer. And phony white outrage isn't compelling. You can't make phony grievance against black people into the next Star Wars or Avengers. People won't line up at the multiplex to see some neo-Confederate superhero either. And as long as there's a few angry racists mad at a world that has left them behind, these Nazi nerds will have a few losers to help them cry in their beer and a few fools they can skim some dollars off of. But what they won't have is a media that makes them feel like they're so special, which is what they really want, to be validated as the end-all and be-all. They're the last ones to figure out they're totally irrelevant. They're whining. But no one is listening there. And that's how all good stories end. Good day and be one. Listen to this horrible foretelling of a future for refugees. I'm going to sugarcoat some of these areas, but things are bad. And it's important for you to know the kind of dangers that exist if you have to pick up everything that you own and leave. Having just come through the uh, jungle areas of one region, the refugees that are being reported on are exhausted, dragging their feet, desperate for things like water, food. They're covered in sweat, grime, and disease-ridden water. Terrible. It was the worst, they say it to the reporter. They are migrants who can't believe that after their several-day trek through the jungle, they have managed to get through the nightmare of death robbery, and violence of all kinds. One person, a Venezuelan, Diana Medina, 20 years old. She fell to the ground as the reporters were asking questions at a spot known as the Puma Ravine, the first point beyond the edge of the jungle that the local indigenous people in their canoes can get to during the dry season. The canoe operators take the refugees along the Tequiza River to a different village in one area in the uh, region of Panama. I had to jump into the river. I could not feel the bottom and so I panicked, one person says. The current carried me away. It was terrible. That's the young woman who was traveling with two different cousins. Three days walking for 12 hours per day during which they saw what they call ugly things. Diana says that we saw a body with a gunshot wound in the forehead. The person was laid face down. There was another in a tent. And there was a man, a girl, I guess it was a family, she says, trying not to lose herself in the memory. Whole families, babies in arms, some riding piggyback on the shoulders of their parents, some groups of young people, all of them repeat having basically the same story, same experience in their refugee crisis. Climbing down rocky mountainous ravines, being thirsty without having anything to drink except the nasty river, which is contaminated by things like human feces, cadavers, and different uh, chemical byproducts that are dumped into it. The threats they use... The weapons, it is scary, one person said, trying to hide your money. And uh, the one person is reported as threatening the group, saying, try to hide your money and I'll see you do it. One person, they report, did try to hide it as much as they could, but they intimidated him, saying that if you're traveling with kids, 
point them out. When you see two or three deceased individuals, you get scared. That's Jonathan, a 32-year-old. He's standing in a line right now during the report to get into one of the canoes. Each adult has to pay a fee to get there. Now, these stories that I'm telling you are legitimate things that are happening around our world. And I don't want you to disassociate from the fact that this will be you in a crisis. This will be you in a long-duration emergency. In the United States of America, we are so pampered and uh, disassociated from the reality of refugee crisis events around our world. And this is because if you have a wildfire in one area, well, guess what? You can go to another state. There's no wildfire there. If you have a tornado like the terrible one that just happened recently across the U.S., guess what? You can go three cities over there and nothing's wrong. But there is going to come a time when the social order is so far collapsed, the political order has driven us into divided chaos, the economic crisis makes it so that everybody becomes a predator just to survive at the end of the day. You're going to have these compounding factors that just getting up to leave your area in the hopes of finding another safer region is one brought with disaster and uh, potential pitfalls. And so you have here, just like the stories that were told by our grandparents when they were trying to leave different parts of Europe under conflict, different parts of World War II, a lot of them had to pay massive amounts just to get a ride somewhere, money that they didn't have. There were different exchanges of bartering, there were threats, there was violence. And here we have it in the year 2023, this same order of things happening. This one individual was paying $20 USD for a ride despite having been robbed recently. He says, you come with your dream with all the money that you have earned. You try hard, but you know there is bad stuff out there in this violence and economic uh, collapse in Venezuela. And in 15 minutes, you lose all your money. They grab anyone who goes into the jungle. When sitting down camping for the night, someone in the group remains on guard few people sleep because of the uh, different stressors that are happening there. The noises, they say, are mostly made by animals, but you always think it's a human noise. Humans do come in and they shine lights on you to see if you're awake. It's really difficult. There is a lot of insecurity. You camp and you hear something in the bushes. They're stealing from someone. They're harming another. And there are those things that we don't even want to talk about. For me, this individual says it was very tough. Wherever you try to go, you find danger. Your food does not last as long as you thought it would. You're here practically multiple nights without food. They hit you, they rob you, they use weapons. All these things within full view and not enough people stand up against it. Humans, for many uh, reasons, they become more and more like uh, cattle led off to slaughter. You know, there's a lot of uh, reasons to believe that you can corral humans just like you can corral sheep, you can corral goats, you can corral chickens, you can corral cattle, and none of them fight back, even though a cow, a bull with massive horns, could easily break through, at least before it gets too deep into the corral, it could break through. The problem is that it knows that it's trapped. And that's the mentality that they push on people. They get them in a group and they know that they're trapped. And just like a barbed wire fence that is kept in a group of cattle for years, 
you have a group of armed men keeping in a, uh, a group of refugees or escapees. They know that if they make it to the edge, well, the cattle know that there's barbed wire there, maybe a hot wire. The humans know that there's a guy with a gun there. They say many people try to go back from their refugee status. They're crying. They don't know what to do, but it's like an axe or a guillotine. If you go on, it closes behind you. If you return, it's going to cut you. There's no going back because there are ropes that you have to go down. And to climb back up, you have to be a professional. The truth is, he says, it's terrible and you absolutely regret it. But despite these different challenges, refugees are crossing these regions to try to get to a new area, new cities, new countries. These things are increasing every day. So far this year alone, 70,000 people have crossed this region individually to gather by Panama's National uh, Immigration Service and that data. A figure that is five times that which was reg uh, registered just in the same time period in 2022. This shows that surprisingly, more and more people around our world know that this is an absolutely horrid time. They say that there is no hope left in humanity. After they get out of the jungle and they get to different regions by uh, canoe, the refugees still have to purchase things that they need. Then they're going to be transported to different authorities' reception centers. They're provided with a little bit of shelter, but even in those regions, it's kind of like camps in different parts of the world, and there's danger there. There are reception stations, humanitarian organizations, things like Doctors Without Borders examining them, some level of first aid treatment, but so many people have gotten uh, sores, infected insect bites, diarrhea, huge amounts and bouts of vomiting. For some of them, it's just the start of their woes. The journey through the jungle is also traumatic psychologically due to the terrain, geographical and weather conditions. There's no roads, narrow, muddy paths is all that people have. Areas they have to climb, others that they have to slide down. You can fall off cliffs and you see down below the people that already have. In addition, these reports show that the refugees are affected by having become victims of violence, also due to the large numbers of deceased that they have seen along their routes. The victims, different coordinators have said, all tell very similar stories. The attack always begins with a robbery. Now, as you take that in, knowing that that is a representative uh, uh, reporting that is representative of refugee status, how will that adjust to your idea of evacuating during a long duration emergency, possibly through potentially violent regions? They say it always starts with a robbery. And in fact, we see across the United States of America the same tactics that are used in places like Brazil starting to be used here. Instead of uh, you know robberies taking place at a person's home at night, you see a lot more uh, quick drive up on a motorcycle robberies. You see quick smash and grabs. You see those tactics that are used very well in other countries starting to be used here in our country. And that's representative of the fact that we are waning in our own stability. Speaking of what's happening around the world, you're hearing a lot about the fighting in Ukraine. I believe that it is important to take a close look at reports from people actually pushing behind concrete buildings to save themselves from things like incoming projectiles. People who are forced to undergo the different stressors of war. 
to learn or at least glimpse some information that you and your family can use if you ever do find yourself in a difficult position. This report states that at a cottage that was turned into a base just a couple of miles from the front lines of the fighting, soldiers from the Ukrainian 24th Mechanized Brigade lay down in sleeping bags. They rest on sofa beds. They're hoping to get a little bit of rest between their rotation to the front lines. Radio communications constantly sound out throughout the night. Every 30 minutes, a raspy male's voice is heard over the radio, notifying soldiers that the front line is either under control, that it needs backup, or that it's being lost and a retreat is underway. We've gotten used to sleeping this way, says one individual. This isn't a bustling young man. This is a 54-year-old soldier telling a reporter. 450 means everything is fine, he says, but if there is an offensive from the Russian side, we get up and we go. When the soldiers report returning to their two-day shifts in the trenches, they're tasked with detecting Russian aerial targets, things like drones. Uh, they try to down, take them down before they can move past them and hit infantry units. Now, the mechanized brigade, the 24th mechanized brigade, took part in different counteroffensives recently. They spent two months in different regions, some of the hottest parts of this Russian war. The platoon, part of the 24th, was deployed to different areas with no break in between. You see, war suffers no rest. Different reporting outlets spent multiple days with the platoon uh, after they were withdrawn. For several weeks, the soldiers say their front lines in the city had been stable, but the Russian forces advancing the region were part of a dynamic increase or a shift in the moment of this war. Platoon Commander Ola, 57 years old, says it's vital not to underestimate your enemy, and I want you to take that to heart. This direction is more or less calm for now, he says, but I don't think that it will be for long. I think the Russians will attack further and deeper and deeper. Russia has continued to amass troops for months now as they attempt to capture new areas in the region, and they are going to push heavily to do so. Despite their own casualties that have been uh, aided in the Russian part by their own mercenary groups, they are inching toward encircling regions in Ukrainian territory. We see this as a blending of World War I, World War II, and now World War III technologies. The report continues from the 57-year-old. I wouldn't say that Russia has seen the results that it claims, but its tactics are working. The two and a half months in one region seem like a survival challenge more than any other for the platoon. Oles says that he barely slept while on the ground in the region. I slept there, he says, without undressing at all. I just took off my shoes. This reminds me of a story that one of my uh, friends and uh, you know, individuals that I knew growing up, uh, he was in the Vietnam War, and he said that he would sleep at night with his pistol duct taped around his hand, fully dressed, laying down. Why? Because he knew that if he was woken up quick in the, uh, you know, in some sort of chaos, he wouldn't be able to shumble, you know, around, shamble around and find his firearm. I'm not saying that anyone should do it. In fact, I'm just I'm saying no one should do that. It's just when you're that stressed in long duration, violent conflict, those are the type of measures that you fall back to. 
This individual explained that he slept in his helmet and bulletproof vest because he could be called up at any moment. He says that his platoon had less work at night because Russia would use fewer drones in the dark, likely because it was harder to conduct their own reconnaissance. But the platoon stayed on alert all the time. They had thermal imaging and things that were able to see in the dark, their own night vision. Russian forces would attack again and again, composing of multiple people, adding to their tactics from previous attacks, sometimes larger, sometimes fewer. This reporter uh, says that one individual always thought something was off with the Russian soldiers. He said they stormed into Ukrainian positions like zombies, not afraid to perish of their own, as if they had been drugged. Now, why is that? What, what can we take from that? <clears throat> During war, you are basically told, I mean, no one, no one goes from, well, let's just take an average American position, right? A, a McDonald's worker, let's say. No, no McDonald's worker says, you know what, tonight, I think that I'm going to leave the safety of my own apartment, the, uh, my ability to gather some food, and I'm going to fight on the front lines. Nobody says that. But when you are either tricked or deluded or misinformed or fed information, real or not, that these invading people or these people that you're fighting against, if you don't do something about it, they're going to come destroy everything that you have ever known, take from you every life that you have ever cared about, rob from you all of the things that you know and love, well, then you'll fight. And so when I see these reports of them saying the Russians fight like they're on drugs, no, they're just given information that if they don't do this, something worse is going to happen. The uh, commander says uh, that it's very similar to what they saw in different movies about uh, zombies or cyborgs on missions to kill. Ukrainian soldiers from different platoons describe similar scenes. Different soldiers used anti-drone guns to take down different drones. Uh, they released radio signals to down them without destroying them so that the counterintelligence agencies can uh, you know, identify different aspects from them. Soldiers say that drones would fly as high as two kilometers. They don't know which ones carry grenades, so their task was just to take them down no matter what. <clears throat> it becomes harder each week, he says, as he recalls his time in this conflict. When drones fly into the city, it means that they're going to soon fire or lead to firing on your position. It's very difficult to stay alive. Now I want you to take these two different positions into heart. One is people fighting on the front lines, and the other one is people who are, in fact, running away from conflict and chaos and crisis, refugees. You have to be fluid. You have to know when you're going to get away and when you're going to fight. The fight or flight response is absolutely vital to your survival. That's why it's ingrained in us, in our instincts, in our humanity. Now, in the military, in different training aspects, and you can get on a civilian level, uh, if you've ever worked in security, you have to push yourself through these. You might need to push yourself through flight into fight. A lot of these things you can do with thought exercises, sometimes with physical exercises, but until you've actually experience something, you don't know what you will do. The best thing that I can ask you to do is just think about what can happen and get ready for it. That's why our community here is absolutely vital to the survival of people during a long duration emergency. Think about what can happen and we get ready for it.
we do what we can. You do your chores, you do your prep work, and then you have fun because having fun allows you to reset and you can do it again tomorrow. In fact, I hope to see you back here tomorrow at Full Spectrum Survival only on YouTube where we can talk more about the things that are happening around our world and the ways that we can best get ready for them. I hope that you will leave us a comment and a question and go answer somebody's question down in the comments. From my family to yours, please stay safe and keep watch. This week's Full Spectrum News is brought to us by each one of you, all of our members on Patreon. Make sure that you check out contingencymedical.com and use the code FSS10 if you're looking for a discount on real antibiotics sent by real doctors. And the code FSS15 over at nutrientsurvival.com forward slash FSS is where you'll get a 15% discount on long-term food storage. They keep the nutrients involved. It's what they work heavily to do. Please, everyone, most of all, stay safe, remain vigilant, and keep watch.